Pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, you tell us in your word to trust in you with all of our heart and not lean on our own understanding. In all our ways, acknowledge you and you will make our path straight. Lord, there are many times in our life where, where you're leading us and what you're asking us to do doesn't make any sense. There are times when we find ourselves at a dead end. Times are, we find ourselves throwing our hands up to the heavens in desperation, wondering if you're going to intervene. Lord, help us to trust in you. One moment, one day at a time. Lord, help us to focus not on tomorrow, but on what today holds and in giving you every aspect of our life. Lord, help us to surrender our will to your will. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to welcome everybody here today. I'm glad that you're with us. Thankful for those joining us on the stream and on TV as well. Always grateful for everyone being a part of the Sagebrush family. So let me start our time together by asking you a question. Have you ever found yourself in a desperate situation? There were three elderly ladies. They were sitting in the lobby of their particular nursing home. When out of the corner of the eye, they saw a nurse come through the front door, and she was pushing in a wheelchair a very handsome elderly man. And they began to hit each other on the knee, pointing over and say, look at that, look at that, look at that. Well, it was fortuitous that the nurse brought over the elderly man as she went over to the desk to finish his paperwork. And they thought this would be a wonderful opportunity for them to have a conversation with him. So one of the ladies said, where have you been for so long? And the elderly man looked up. He said, I've been in prison for the last 25 years for killing my wife. <laughs> now, the lady perked up and said, then you're single. <laughs> now, friends, that's dead-end desperation right there. What do you do when you find yourself in a desperate situation? What do you do when you find yourself in a dead end? Here's what I'm hoping, and here's what I'm hoping this series will do for you, is that you'll lean upon your faith in God. That you'll hold on to God with white knuckle intensity and you'll be overwhelmed by the presence and the power of God and you will be faithful to him no matter what. I read a story about a woman. She was on board a ship. It was in the Atlantic Ocean. Storm blew against that ship. Captain was nervous. The people on board the ship were nervous. There was only one cool and calm and collected person aboard that ship. It was an elderly woman. She was so calm in the midst of the chaos and the situation, she called all the children together who were crying. She said, don't cry, children. God has got this. God is bigger than this. God is powerful. He'll never leave us. He'll never forsake us. We're going to cast all our cares upon him because he cares so much for us. Well, the next morning when the sun was coming up and the storm had passed by and it was obvious that they were going to make it to the port, the captain went over to the elderly woman. He said, I don't understand it. He said, everybody was upset, everybody was crying, everybody was screaming, everybody was panicking. I was panicking on the inside, and yet you appeared to be so cool, so calm, so collected. What do, what do you have that other people don't have? And this is what she said. She said, sir, I have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And I know that he'll never leave me. I know that he'll never forsake me. I know that he'll always be by my side, that even in the midst of tragedy, he is right there with me. He is my rock. He's my refuge. He's my strength. She said, there's something else you need to know about me. He said, what's that? She said, I have two daughters, one who lives here in New York and one who lives in heaven. I knew that in the next few hours, I was going to see one of my two daughters, and I didn't care which one it was. 
Friends, that is extraordinary faith. I read a story this past week about a guy named Brother Andrew. You need to get this book if you've never read it. It's called God Smuggler. Brother Andrew was a guy who would go in from one, to one country to another where it was illegal to have the Word of God, and he would smuggle in Bibles. And I mean, when he was smuggling Bibles, whatever vehicle he had, he would gut that vehicle. He put a Bible in every crack and crevice that in that vehicle had, and he would cover those, be, those uh, crevices back up again. He would take down the back seats, and in the compartment, he would stack hundreds and hundreds of Bibles. In his heart and his soul, he believed that every person should have access to the life-changing Word of God. Well, you can imagine that when you're doing this in a communist country where it's illegal to have the Bible, that this can be very, very dangerous work. I mean, if you're fine with a vehicle, uh, found out about with a vehicle full of Bibles, one of two things is going to happen to you. You're going to end up in jail or they're going to shoot you right on the spot. He said, the first time I came to a checkpoint, I was scared to death. He said, I knew they were going to search the vehicle. And I, was, I knew that they were going to find the Bibles because there was hundreds and hundreds of Bibles. So he said, I began to pray a little prayer. This was the prayer he prayed. Lord, in the scriptures, you made blind eyes see. Now I'm asking you to make seeing eyes blind. He said, on that first checkpoint, they pulled him out of the car. And they began to search the vehicle. And they ripped back the back seats. And there was the secret compartment. And it was just filled with Bibles. Hundreds and hundreds of Bibles. He said, I was waiting for it. I was waiting for them to arrest me. I was waiting for them to tell me to get on my hands and my knees. I was waiting to be shot for what I had done. He said, I was shocked when they put the back seats back up again and looked at me and said, have a nice day. He said, from that point forward, I prayed that prayer every time I went through a checkpoint. And God was faithful every single time. Friends, you want to strengthen your faith? You've got to move forward with your faith. You've got to do the things that God has called you to do. You can't wait till the perfect situation. You've got to move forward regardless of that. This is what Brother Andrew said in his book. He said, the door may seem closed, but it's only closed the way a supermarket door is closed. It stays shut when you remain at a distance, but as soon as you deliberately move toward it, a magic eye above it sees you coming and the door opens. God's waiting for us to walk forward in obedience so he can open the door for us to serve him. That is extraordinary faith, and that's the kind of faith that's going to get us through the desperate times of life. So today we're going to start this little new series, and we're going to study a, a life of a man that we've never studied before in the history of our church. He's found in the Old Testament. His name is Elisha. And he finds himself in one dead end after another dead end, in one desperate situation after another, and yet his faith in God gets him through. And I'm hopeful at the end of this series, you'll say, you know what? I'm going to place more faith and trust in God than I ever have before to see God do one miracle after another. Now, for you to understand the life of Elisha, you got to understand what's going on in the nation of Israel at this time. Now, for some of you who have studied the Old Testament, you know that there was a time when the children of Israel came to God and said, listen, we don't want you ruling us anymore. We want a king. That was a lesson in being careful what you ask for because God gave them a king. And the first king over Israel was a guy by the name of Saul. Saul was the very first king. He reigned for many years and then he died. And then a man named 
David took over the throne of Israel. You probably know the most about David on all of these three kings that I'm going to talk about. Now, after David passed away, he passed the baton of the throne onto his son Solomon. You know that Solomon was the second wisest guy to ever walk the face of the earth. He was the richest person to ever walk the face of the earth of the earth. Well, in 1 Kings chapter 11, God comes to Solomon and says, I have picked a new king. And the new king that I have picked is a man named Jeroboam. Well, Solomon was not excited about Jeroboam being chosen as the next king over Israel because that wasn't his son. He wanted his son to reign. So Solomon took matters into his own hands, tries to kill Jeroboam. Somehow Jeroboam escapes the assassination attempt, and he flees to Egypt. Now, while Jeroboam is gone, Solomon goes ahead and he installs his son, this is where it gets confusing, Rehoboam, in as king. I guess that was a popular name back in that time period. What shall we name? Let's do, I don't know what we should name, but let's add Boam to the end of it. That's what they were saying right there. So we got Jeroboam who's run away over to Egypt. Rehoboam has now taken over the throne after Solomon. Well, one of the things you need to know about what's going on during this time period is that Solomon was a hard man and that he overtaxed the people. And when Rehoboam takes over the throne, Civil war is about to break out. And so he goes to the elders, the wise men of the community, and he says, listen, I want to win over the hearts of the people. What should I do? And the elders say, listen, if you'll just give the people some tax relief, they will rise up and they will call you blessed and you will have their very hearts. Oh, wouldn't it be wonderful if we had a president that would give us tax relief? But you're never going to see it. Do you understand that, right? It's not going to happen. Well... Rehoboam says, I'll take that under consideration. Then he goes to his friends who he grew up with, the snot-nosed kids he hangs with. He says, what do you think I should do to win the hearts of the people? And they say, I don't think you're ever going to win the hearts of the people. What you need to do is tax them more. Tax them more and tax them more and tax them more. Take their will from them. Beat them down. Break their hearts. And they won't have any choice but to serve you. Rehoboam Love power. And he thought, you know what? That's not a bad idea. Friends, one of the things you need to know about Rehoboam is he wasn't very smart. He was a few peas short of a casserole. He was a few screws short of a hardware store. The, the, the lights were on and the, and the bridge was down, but there wasn't any train coming. Do you understand? Rehoboam was the kind of guy who couldn't pour water out of a boot even if the instructions were on the heel. Do you understand what I'm saying? His cheese had slid off the cracker. I can go forever on these, okay? I just want you to know that right now. So Rehoboam chooses to do uh, that which will cause a civil war. And sure enough, that's what happened. The nation of Israel is split in two at this point. Uh, there are 12 tribes that make up the nation of Israel. Ten of the 12 tribes go with Jeroboam. He came back from Egypt. And they became the northern kingdom, which we call Israel. And then two of the tribes followed Rehoboam, took on the tax burden, I guess. And then they took the name. They were called the southern kingdom. They took the name of Judah. So one of the things you need to know about Elisha is he is a prophet to the northern kingdom. Another thing you need to know about the northern kingdom is that they never had a good king. 
Not one single king was a good king. In the annuals of the kings, it says this, that they did what was wicked in the eyes of the Lord. It happens again and again and again and again until finally God wipes those people from the face of the earth. Another thing you need to know about Elisha was he was mentored by a guy by the name of Elijah. It's confusing, doesn't it? All these names that are very similar. Elijah mentors Elisha. Now, you probably know some of the stories about Elijah. There are some pretty popular stories in the Old Testament about the things that God did through him. Probably the most well-known story is the time when Elijah called down fire from heaven to consume a sacrifice. There was a great showdown that happened. Elijah called out the prophets of Baal and Asherah, 850 men. He said, hey, how long will you people waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, then we'll worship him. If Baal is God, then we'll worship him. You take a bull, you chop the bull up, put it on the altar, and you call down fire from heaven. I'll do the same. Whichever God answers by fire is the one true God. And the people shook their heads and thought that was a good idea. So you know the story, the prophets of Baal and Asherah picked their bull, they began to chop it up, and then they began to dance around and call out to their God. And this went on for hours. But there was no fire coming down from heaven from their false gods. And so Elijah, one of the reasons I love him so much was he was a trash talker. I like, I like to trash talk. Got any cowboy fans here? Just out of curiosity, cowboy fans? I love trash talking. Anyway, he starts trash talking. He says, maybe your God hasn't answered because he's on vacation. That's what he said to him. He said, maybe your God hasn't answered because he's busy right now. Can't be at more than one place at a time. And then he said this. This is so funny. You can look it up. He said, maybe your God's on the pot. He's indisposed. He's doing his business. And he can't come and take care of what needs to be done here. He's making fun of them. And the more he makes fun of them, the more angry they become. And the prophets of Baal and Asherah start cutting themselves over and over and over again. They bleed their blood on their altar. They call out to their false gods. Every time we see cutting in Scripture, it has to do with demonic activity. There are forces at work. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy you. And so there's people that are absolutely being destroyed. And Elijah says, you know, I've seen enough. So he makes his altar. He cuts up his bull. He pours water all over the altar. Not, not a smart thing to do, is it, when you're calling fire down from heaven? Pours water all over the altar. Says a 20-second prayer. And all of a sudden, immediately, the fire from heaven comes down and consumes it. And the 850 prophets of Baal and Asherah are killed in a single day. He's won a tremendous victory. But then word comes from a messenger that King Ahab, who was the king at the time, his wife Jezebel, now wants Elijah to die because he has killed all of the prophets that she worshipped. And she's mad and she's upset. So Elijah freaks out and he runs as fast as he can to the mountains to hide. Now let me see if I've got this straight. He has just had a showdown with 850 men. He has been so courageous. But when he hears a one itty bitty woman wants to kill him, he runs for his life. That makes sense when you think about it, to be honest with you. I mean, that's right there, I tell you what. He gets up to on the top of the mountain. He says, God, just kill me now. This stuff about being a prophet's not fun. I'm tired. I'm worn out. I just want to die. I'm the only one left anyway. God gives him something to eat and gives him rest, gives him something to eat, gives him rest. After a couple of days, God says, you're not the only one. And I want you to start a school of prophets. 
and I've got some things that I want you to do. And I want you to mentor a man by the name of Elisha. And that's where Elisha's story begins in 1 Kings 19. Here's what it says. So Elijah went from there and found Elisha. He was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the 12th pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said, and then I'll come with you. Go back, Elijah replied. What have I done to you? So Elisha left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen, slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he set out to follow Elijah and became his attendant. All right, you want an extraordinary faith? In the midst of desperate darkness, here's what you do. You be faithful where you are. You be faithful where you are. You be faithful today. It was, an, it was a normal day, just like any other day. Elisha's out in his fields. And what do we know about Elisha? Well, we know that he's rich. He's, he's got 12 pair of oxen. That, that's a rich person in this time period. He's got a 12 pair of oxen. He's in charge of a large farm. He owns a large farm. And what's he doing? He's taking care of business. He's plowing with one of the pairs of the oxen. Now, let me ask you a question. What, what view does Elisha have day after day plowing with those oxen? View doesn't change very much, does it? Think about what he's stepping in every single day. Think about what he's smelling Every single day. I like how one author put it. He said, it's incredibly easy to lose your passion when all you see is oxen rears. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about because all you see is babies rears. You have a baby. Baby goes poop. Baby has to be cleaned up. Change the diaper. Feed the baby so it can go poop again. And all day long, what do you do? You change the diaper. You feed the baby. You put the baby down. You change the diaper. Feed the baby. Put the baby down. Day after day after day after day. And then the little sinner grows up, don't they? The little sinner grows up. Now they want to run over here. And they want to run over there. And they want to go do this. And they want to do that. And you become a human taxi cab. And you're running over here. And you're running over there. And you think, what do I have to go? What, do I, what am I doing tomorrow? Well, nothing too exciting. Just another plain old ordinary day. And you can get to a point where you think what you're doing is not important. You can get to a point where you're not giving your very best. Some of you go to jobs every day. You hate your job. This is not the dream job you were hoping for. In fact, this is just a job that you're going to have right now until you get to that job that you really, really want. And every day, it's just another mundane day of doing those tasks, doing those chores, getting that lousy paycheck day after day, week after week, month after month. Are you giving your best? Are you showing up? Are you being faithful every single day? I, I get it. You know, this, this job that I have, I mean, Easter, <laughs> Christmas Eve, and Mother's Day only come once a year. You understand what I'm saying? And the rest of the weeks, it's just hard. It's just difficult. And we're trying to get people to come, trying to get people to bring their friends, trying to get people into small groups, trying to help people realize that God is for them and not against them. Then there's meetings that you have to have, and there's systems, and there's processes that need to be come up with. And then you got to mentor the staff, and you got to work with them and help them and help them to become. And it's just one day after another day after another day. You got to keep showing up. You got to keep being faithful. You got to keep giving your best. Even when you think you're in a dead end, you got to keep giving your best, even though you put your head on your pillow at night and you're completely 
desperate about your current situation. So can I ask you a question? Are you giving your best? Because the Bible says this, he who is faithful with the little, God will entrust even greater things. Are you being faithful? Are you giving your best in your marriage? Are you being faithful? Are you giving your best in your job? Are you being faithful? Are you giving your best at your school? Are you being faithful? Are you showing up every day and giving your best to the one who gave his best to you? It was an ordinary day. It was like any other day before Elisha's out there. He's got the oxen going, sees the same thing, smells the same thing. Then Elijah shows up and throws his cloak on his back. This was a tremendous responsibility. Elijah is saying, I believe in you. I'm passing the baton on to you. And that school of prophets that Elijah has started, they all wanted that cloak. They all wanted to be the next guy. And, and Elisha is just overwhelmed. He's like, you got to be kidding me. I, I, I'm amazed that I get this. He's got a tremendous opportunity, doesn't he? But he also has a tremendous responsibility. I don't know if you know this, but being a prophet in the Old Testament wasn't an easy job. You had to go before the king. You had to say the things that God wanted you to say. And all these kings did evil and wicked in the eyes of the Lord. So every time they had to go before a king, they were sharing things with the king that the king didn't want to hear. This is the second thing if you want to have, if you want to get through a, a dead-end desperation. you got to be willing to say yes to God even though you don't fully understand what you're getting into. you got to be willing to say yes to God even though you don't fully understand what you're getting into. I like the way one author put it. He says, you don't have to understand fully to obey immediately. Let me say that again. That was good. You don't have to understand fully to obey immediately. Some of you are waiting for God to make sense in your life before you're really following. He's never going to make sense. His ways are not your ways. His thoughts are not your thoughts. We bring this up all the time around here, don't we? We talk about following God even when it doesn't make any sense. There's so many ways where we have opportunity to, to grow our faith. When God calls us to do something that doesn't make sense. I always bring up tithing from time to time because I know that doesn't make any sense. Think about this. I get up here and I say, listen, give 10% of your money to the kingdom of God, to the things of God, so that the message of Jesus can be advanced. And God will bless you. He'll do more with the 90% than you ever did with the 100%. Does that make any sense to you? Because you can put that down on a piece of paper, keep 100% or give away 10%, keep 90%. And he's going to do more with 90 than he did with, does the math add up for you? Because I can tell you right now, that doesn't make any sense. What makes sense is I keep the 100 and I keep going strong and I won't worry about this 90 thing over here. This new math doesn't make any sense. That's the way I live my life. I knew what God's word said. Test me in this. And see if I don't open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing upon you, you don't have room enough for it. And I said, I don't trust you at all. So I'm on staff at a church. I didn't give a dime. No way. That don't make no sense. They're not paying me enough anyway. I need all 100%. Give 90%. Give 10%. That's ridiculous. I'm not doing that. And I didn't. And I got deeper and deeper and deeper in debt. I've told you before, my wife was crying in one room because we were looking at the bills and I was blaming her and she was blaming me. And I went back into the bedroom and I said, God, we got a problem with Christy. I'll tell you that right now. We need to do something about that. 
And God said, Todd, the problem's you. And I walked out of that back bedroom, walked into the kitchen where my wife was crying. And I said, nobody gets paid till God gets paid. We're going to test him and see if he's faithful. Dropping that first check in the collection box was one of the hardest things I've ever done. I think I stood there for five minutes before I finally released that stinking check. I don't get it. But I can tell you, he's done more with the 90 than I ever did with the 100. It don't make any sense. I'm in better financial shape than I've ever been in my entire life. And I will honor God because if I honor God, he'll honor me. And if I dishonor God, guess what? He's not going to honor me. You need to understand that. He says, test me in this. I know it doesn't make any sense. It didn't make any sense to me. It doesn't make any sense to me that it works. But there are thousands of us that know that it does. Let me tell you another one. It doesn't make any sense to the hard work in your marriage, does it? Some of you walked in here today, some of you are watching from home, your marriage is hanging on by a thread. And you came in here, you tuned in, and you're saying, I'm just hopeful that he'll say something that will help my marriage out. And then I get up here and I say, hey, husband, why don't you love your wife as Christ loved the church and give, herself, give yourself up for her? Sacrifice for her. Put her needs first. And you're like, that don't make no sense. I'll start serving her when she starts serving me. That's what I'll do right there. I don't know I'm going to do that. She needs to serve me first before I start right. Doesn't make any sense when I say, you know what God's word says to you ladies? Respect your husband. I'm not respecting him. When he starts being respectable, then I'll respect him. Not respecting him. Hey, be your husband's biggest fan. Stop dogging him. Stop nagging him. I, I can't change him unless I nag him. Hey, keep doing what you're doing. Kill your marriage one unkind word at a time. Yeah, I get it. Doesn't make any sense. Put the needs of somebody else ahead of yourself. Doesn't make any sense to love others the way Jesus has loved you. Doesn't make any sense to forgive in the same way that God's forgiven you. But if you'll do it, he can fix your broken marriage. Doesn't make any sense to you that reading the word of God together on a daily basis would make a difference, but it does. Doesn't make any sense to you getting on your knees by your bed every night and holding your spouse's hand and praying to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords would knit the two souls closer together than ever before. Obviously, it doesn't make sense to many of us because you've never done it. But if you would, if you started taking spiritual things seriously and you started talking about your relationship with Jesus, if you really made Jesus the centerpiece of your home, man, if you started showing up to church more than once every month, you started taking this stuff seriously and started applying it to your marriage, I can tell you right now, no matter how many broken pieces it's in, he can put it all back together again. But you got to do the things that don't make any sense. Let me talk to all the single ladies, all the single ladies, and all the single men. It doesn't make any sense to be pure. Nobody's pure. People living together, people shacking up. You go out on one date and they... You're in bed with the person. That's just the way of the world, isn't it? And then you read God's word, and he says, listen, I don't want you to go out with somebody who's not a Christian. Like, that don't make no sense. I was like that. I was like, what in the world? I'm not doing that. That's stupid. I mean, that just drops it down to like 1% of eligible people to date. You understand what I'm talking about? And, 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 and I, how can I know about the love of God if I'm not loving them, right? That's what I'm thinking. You dishonor God in your dating relationship, and then you expect him to honor you. You honor God, he'll honor you. You got to do the things that don't make any sense, the things that make you mad, the things that frustrate you, the things you're like, I don't get that. Do it. 
see if God isn't faithful. You don't have to know everything to obey him. Your job is to obey him even when he doesn't make any sense to you. We have to get to this point in our life where we surrender everything we are over to him. We stop holding control, which we do not have anyway, and we give that away to him. Let me give you a dangerous prayer you got to pray this year. You ready for this? God, I've got this sin in my life, and I keep going back to it, and I know it's not your will for me to continue to live this way, but not my will be done, but your kingdom come in my life in this place. God, I have this person that I just cannot stand at all, and, and I just want to hurt them like they've hurt me. I want revenge. But you say in your word that vengeance is yours. So I'm going to leave that in your hands. And I'm asking you to give me the strength to forgive. Your kingdom come. Your will be done in my life. Some of you need to get baptized. You continue to refuse to be obedient to what Jesus wants you to do. Pride is getting the best of you. You've got to get on your knees and say, oh no, God, pride will not win. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Anywhere, any place, no matter what, all I want is what you want for me. Your kingdom come, your will be done forever and ever. Elijah's willing to commit. How do we know he's willing to commit? Well, Elisha says here in the Bible, he killed the oxen and he burned the plows. What does this mean? He's shutting down the farm. He's burning down the plowing equipment. He's killing the oxen. He's feeding the whole town. What's he saying? He says, I'm leaving my old life behind. And now I'm going to follow after God with everything that I've got. Now, here's what's interesting. Elijah didn't ask him to do it. But Elisha wanted to do it. Let me ask you a question. Do you think that was a sacrifice for Elisha? We admire people, don't we, who make a sacrifice for the things of God, for the kingdom of God? We, we admire Mother Teresa. I mean, she goes to Calcutta. She works with the poor. We admire her. We admire Martin Luther King Jr. Gave his very life for the civil rights movement. We admire his commitment, don't we? But here's my question. Do you think it was a sacrifice for them? If we had them here today and we say, hey, all the things that you did, all the things, was that a sacrifice that you made? David Livingston, who was a missionary to Africa, he gave a speech at Cambridge University on December the 4th, 1857. This is what he said in this speech. He said, people talk of the sacrifice I've made in spending so much of my life in Africa. It is emphatically no sacrifice. Rather, it's a privilege. He went on to say, anxiety, sickness, suffering, and or danger now and then with the foregoing of modern conveniences may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver and the soul to sink. But let this only be for a moment. All these are nothing when compared with the glory which shall be revealed in and for us. I have never made a sacrifice. So here's the question. Is it truly a sacrifice if you get back more than you gave away? 
Elisha says, I'm burning the, the plows. I'm killing the oxen. I'm all in. And he was honored to do it. He wanted to do it. He counted it a privilege to do it. So let me ask you something. What's the greatest sacrifice you've ever made for God? And how does it compare to the sacrifice that he made for you? Because let's not forget that Jesus left more than a little behind for you and me. He left his throne in heaven to walk on streets of mud. And he left his blood behind, didn't he? All of his blood. He sacrificed himself so that we might have life. Abundant life on this earth and eternal life in heaven. Jesus made his choice, didn't he? He said, I'm all in for you. The question I guess I have is, are you all in for him? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, this is the Christian life. It's showing up every day and giving our best. It's following you when you don't make a lick of sense. It's chasing after you. Being obedient. Being faithful. And then you take us on the adventure of a lifetime. And then when we find ourselves at a dead end, when we find ourselves in a desperate situation, we know that you're greater still. And that you can overcome anything that we face. And how do we know it? Because we've walked with you every day. And you've never let us down. You've never failed us. So Lord, I pray that you would develop that kind of faith inside each and every one of us. That every day we would give our best to you. And every day the answer would be yes, even though we don't know the question that you have for us. Lord, may we be faithful to you in the same manner that you've been faithful to us. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.